Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hi everyone, Diana here. Welcome to this little bonus episode, which is a companion piece to my discussion with Chris Salovich. I hope you've checked out my discussion with Chris. It's called Paul as Artist, a conversation with Chris Salovich. I highly recommend it because A, it's on my podcast, but also it's packed full of great foundational information about McCartney. So if you want to dig further into McCartney, it should be of interest to you. But also, you know, Chris is just a charming, insightful, delightful human being. And uh, we had some terrific conversations. So please check it out. It's where it's at. Also, just a heads up, this interview with Chris has been updated with new and improved audio because the last one got oddly compressed when uploading it to the, the podcast provider and was, in my opinion, um, pretty well unlistenable, which I'm very sorry about, but it's all been resolved now. So please check it out. And as a little peace offering, I have had Chris's 1986 interview with McCartney cleaned up so it's a little easier to listen to. Just a little bit of background about this interview in case uh, you anyone doesn't know. Um, This is a famous or famous in the Beatles world (laughs) interview with Paul uh, because Paul is unusually candid and forthcoming and unguarded in this interview. And anyone in the Beatles world knows that unguarded and um, candid McCartney is a beautiful and rare thing. So uh, so this this interview is intriguing, but this audio is actually Chris's personal recording. Uh, for his written piece in Q Magazine. So it was never meant to see the light of day, which is why the original, the one that you can find on YouTube, sounds like they are having the loudest conversation in the world's loudest cafe in the middle of a freeway. So, you know, it's not easy to listen to, but the content is fantastic, which is why I thought it was worth uploading to the podcast and cleaning up a little bit. So um, I hope you enjoy it. And um, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, and stay tuned for more great stuff in the future. And uh, that's it. Happy listening. Take care. Bye for now. There it is. It's your presentation. You you meant to get every bit of it right. So, I mean, how do you react to criticism? I mean... I don't really know. Now I'm being very flash and very nonchalant and saying I don't care. But I haven't seen too many reviews. And if I, when I see bad reviews, it'll hurt me. Um, but I am giving myself a bit easier time in life these days. Uh, I've gone through so much criticism, and not just from critics, from, from people like 
that, um, like a fool, I can actually just stood there and sort of said, yeah, well, you know, you must be right. I've done this. I, that wasn't too nice of I'm beginning to see it a bit differently now. I'm beginning to see a lot of what they say is their problem, not mine, a lot of the time. And in John's thing, you know, when, when as you, I mean, you, you obviously know, he was going through a lot of pain when he said a lot of that stuff. And he felt that we were um, being kind of vindictive against him and Yoko. In actual fact, I just answered a question on the American TV thing. I think we were quite good, looking back on it, and knowing people in life. Many people would have just down tools with a situation like that. He just said, look, man, she's not sitting on our amps while we're making a film. I mean, that wouldn't be unheard of. I mean, Sean Penn. Do you know what I mean? Right. You know, that most people would just say, we're not having this person here. Don't care how much you love her. But we were actually quite supportive. Not supportive enough. You know, it would have been nice to be really supportive because then we could look back and say, weren't we really terrific? But looking back on it, I think we were okay. We were never really that mean to I think a lot of the time, John suspected meanness where it wasn't really there. I guess presumably very paranoid. I think so. I mean, he warned me off Yoko once. You know, look, this was my, my chick, you know, just because he knew my reputation. We, we knew each other rather well. And um, I felt... But I, did, I just kind of said, yeah, no problem. But, I mean, I sort of did feel he ought to have known I would. You know, he was going through, I'm just a jealous guy. I'm, he was a paranoid guy. And he was into drugs, heavy. Yeah, which makes you He was into heroin. And oh, yeah. so it's been but, See, which I haven't, I haven't realized till just now. It's all in my brain. I was just figuring, oh, there's John, my buddy. And he's turning on me because he perceives that I'm McCartney bandwagon, he once said to me, oh, they're all on the McCartney bandwagon. And to me, I was just releasing a record. Okay, so you can call it McCartney bandwagon, but it's no, it's no harm. It's no more than anybody else does when you put out a record. Yeah. And yeah, things like that were hurting him. And uh, looking back on it now, I just think it's a bit sad, really. Um, yeah, but I saw that thing in the Observer last week. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think that starts to show some of the pain he was going through. I think, okay, I mean, you know, hell, anyway, look, he was a great guy, great sense of humor. I mean, if he did it, I'd do it all again. I, don't, I, mean, I, I mean, I'd go through it all again and have him slag me off all again. You know, just because he was so great. Those are all the down moments. Was he, but there was, there was much more pleasure. Than, than has really come out. Every article now, I'm always saying, I'm sorry, this and that, the drama, so Really, I'm quite happy. I mean, we had a wonderful, I had a wonderful time with one of the world's most talented people. That's like a plus. I say, we, we had all these crazinesses. But for instance, when, if someone took one of your wedding photos, if you're married, you know, yeah. someone took your wedding photo and put a funeral on it, you kind of, you, you, you tend to feel a little bit sorry for the guy. You think, wait a minute, you know. I mean, I'll tell you what, if I'd ever done that to his thing, it would have just hit the roof. But I, I kind of just sat through it all and was mild-mannered Clark Kent. But yeah. was this, this must have been hurting you, presumably, though. Or, Not half, yeah. And, but, I mean, when did you actually get a perspective on it? I still haven't. It's still inside me. I was just talking to someone the other day. I said, John was lucky he got all his hurt out. Got all his pain out. He got all his feelings out. I'm not really that kind of person. Um, I'm a different sort of person. I'm inside me that sort of is still trying to work it out. And that's why, you know, it's kind of good to see that wedding funeral bit. Because I, 
started saying, wait, this is, this is someone who's going over the top. This isn't just your average jive. This is like paranoid. This is paranoia manifesting itself. And so my feeling is just like it sort of was at the time, which is like, ah, uh, you know, he's my buddy. I don't want to, I don't really want to do anything to hurt him or his memory or anything. I don't want to hurt Yoko. But at the same time, it doesn't mean I understand what went down. Or I don't, I don't, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I went at Yoko's request, I went to New York recently. Did you say she? No. Uh, I went to New York. She said she wanted to see me. And I said I was going through New York and stuff. And, uh, so I kind of stopped off and rang her. She said she couldn't see me that day. I was in New York, I was like 400 yards away from her. And I said, well, I mean, I'll pop over any time today, five minutes, 10 minutes, whenever you can squeeze me in. She said, it's going to be very difficult. I said, well, OK, I understand. What is the reason, by the way? She said, um, I was up all night with Sean. I said, well, I understand. I've got four kids, and I understand that. It's terrible. It's the rebound to have a minute today, sometime. I said, I'm leaving soon. Can't really hang around. And she asked me to come, flown in specially. Oh, wait, you've gone there specially? Yeah. To see her. Yeah, to see her. And she didn't see me. So I, I, so I, I kind of a little bit humiliated, but I said, okay, 9.30 tomorrow morning then. Let's make an appointment. She rang up about 9 o'clock and said, could you make it tomorrow morning? But I mean, completely off the record, I mean, she's still on something, isn't she? She's still, I was told she's still on method, isn't she? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's I honestly true. don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing, you know, what I'm saying is like, it wasn't all my fault. I'm beginning to let myself off a did lot. You take, of did, you have, did you have a lot of guilt? Did you yeah. Take yeah. Well, when some of the world's greatest entertainer calls you angry, Bert Humperdinck, you get feelings of something. And um, yeah, I always felt guilty. Always felt guilty. But looking back on it, I keep thinking, okay, let's try and let's try and analyze it. Now, John was hurt. What was he hurt by? What was the single biggest thing that we can find in all our research that hurt John? The biggest thing I can find is that I told the world the Beatles were finished. I don't think that's so hurtful. I know he said, you know, it was like um, to put publicity for my album. Which, but I don't even think that's hurtful. Big deal. But four months after the group. Traditionally, people do do these things at the appropriate point anyway. But four months after the group's broken up, and we've waited for four months to see if we get back together again, I then announced, I'll tell you what was unfortunate, the method of announcing it all, which again, there's a story behind that, which was that I said to the guy at the office, happened to be Peter Brown, of book fame, I said, I've got an album coming out, can't we? I don't really want to see too much press. Can you do me some question and answer things? So I answered them all. But I printed it off and put it in the press copies of the album. But I think the perception of that when it arrived on the journalist's desk was, oh, this is my car. You really from it now. And I kind of showed her. Oh, bloody hell. I could see it quite clearly. At the time, it was me trying to answer some questions that were being asked. And I decided to not fudge that question. And I say, looking back on it, I don't think, I mean, if that's the most hurtful thing I did, I haven't really heard much else beyond that. We didn't accept Yoko totally. But like I say, you know, how many groups do you know these days? I mean, it's, it's a joke. It's like Spinal Tap. 
course. I mean, it's the spinal tap uh, joke. Actually, it's something I always thought, you know, I always have this assumption I go to interview groups, so you interview everyone. You think everyone knows what's going on. Then you talk, for, uh, you, you talk to individual members and you find that no one knows what's going on. They don't communicate at all, you know, and yeah, then you start seeing it on stage, you know, like, you know, you suddenly see how separate they are on the stage. The Aldrin and Townsend, you know, or the clashes or something. Aldrin and Townsend on Live Aid. Reed started do copying Roger's movements because he knows exactly what Roger's going to do. And so in the end, Roger started doing Reed's movements. They missed each other absolutely terrible, actually. Well, anyway, generally speaking, you know, what I'm saying is I love John. I was his best mate for a long time. Then the group started to break up. It was very sad. I got the kind of rap as being the guy who wrote the group. Well, that's not actually true. But you had to actually do it to get out of that. It wasn't actually true. Yeah, legally I had to. But he'd already said you could. He was busy. It was months before, yeah. And so I got into this legal thing. And, you know, looking back on it, I say I got a lot of guilt of that. But you tell me what you would have done if. The entire earnings that you earn, and, and it was something like the Beatles, entire earnings is a big figure. This is everything we'd ever done through all the American tours, all the record success, everything we'd ever done up to somewhere around about Hey Jude. And that was about to disappear. It was about to go into someone's pocket. And the, the guy I'm talking about, it's Klein, um, and he, he had five million of them. Dollars the first year managed the people's. So I, I smelled a rat. I thought, well, five million in one year, how long is it going to take him to get rid of it all? Um, so I started to resist, and I was given a lot of pressure. They, also, they, they, called, they said, oh, you're always stalling. This is when I, they came to sign Klein's country, you probably heard of it. But they, but they thought it was part of you being involved They said, who are we going to get? We looked at Lord Beeching. Looked at all these people. John interviewed Lloyd Beeching because he's done the railways so, so great. Maybe you get it. But we wanted who we called Mr. X. We knew we needed someone after Brian. And so my, we had a meeting in Iceland and said, we really need Mr. X. And if we can get someone really great, it'd be fabulous. Um, so then the Beeching thing came along. And then I just met my in laws in the East. And I was pretty impressed. And he's a pretty impressive guy. And it would have been great. But obviously, everyone worried that because it was my father-in-law, I'd be the one who'd look after. I think there must obviously be some element of that. So that worried him. And quite naturally, they just said, no, we can't have him. So in the end, it turned out to be Klein. And I said to people, well, I want out of this. And they said, uh, you can't. I said, I want to sue this guy, Klein. And they said, you can't. He's not a party to any of the agreements. So it became clear I had to sue the Beatles. So obviously I became the baddie. I, I put on a black hat. Um, but afterwards, you see, the thing is, it's like when you get in a sensation in the newspaper, the retraction is always a week later on the, on the back sports page, the bottom of the sports page. It's, the truth of that whole thing is that, yes, I did take the Beatles to the High Court, which is like a highly traumatic period, having to front that one out. You know, imagine, seriously, having to front that one. The world's feel through the world's like feel through crazy, just insane, so insecure. Half the reason I grew the beard, all of the other reasons sort of split. Yeah, but I know people actually when they put hair on their face, often to hide. That's it's on the cover up, yeah. And uh, I had this big beard, so I went to the high court and everything. 
I managed to save that, and the judge said something about the prattle of a second-class salesman, talking about climate. They actually, they put in evidence this big, expecting us not to look at it. Because their side, I don't think, looked at what they put in. But we, my whole life was on the line at that point, I, I felt. I felt this was, the, this was the fire, this was the furnace, you know. Finally, it arrived. And we used to get shakes in our voices. Neil asked, well, you talk to Neil about some of the meat things. We got the mix and shakes. It was very, something we never, ever had before. Remember Neil quite clearly trying to, the aforementioned parties uh, this is that's coming up anyway. It's on there, boys. But, uh, yeah. So we went through a lot of uh, all those problems. But the nice thing was to say, afterwards, the little retraction on the sports page was that each one of them in turn, just very, very quietly, very briefly, said, oh, thanks for that. Say it all that was about all I ever heard about it. I mean, to this day, no one's ever gone into depth. No, that's never actually said, but you, well, it has been that you were right. In the end, you were right. So that's what I mean, you know. Well, it, it was actually said, but again, see, John turned it round to it, like this thing in the Observer. He said, but you're always right, aren't you? See, there was always this thing. So, I mean, it was really, it was crazy for me, because I come from Liverpool, and I thought the idea was to try and get it right, you know? And it was quite surprising to find that if you did get it right, people could then turn that one around and say, well, you're always right, aren't you, smarmy? Or whatever, you know. You go, oh, and I'm like intelligent enough to be able to see that angle the minute they go, oh, look, shit, I hadn't thought of that. It's like moving the goalposts. It's that one, you know, it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. I mean, it, it occurred quite a few times, you know, because I'm pretty, um, they kind of, you know, ruthless, ambitious, all that stuff. Not showbiz. But I'm pretty, uh, can be pretty forceful. If if we've got to uh, make a record, I'll actually sit down and write songs. See, I was, I was told, which can be interpreted as being overpowering and forceful. Go ahead. I was told, I mean, that in fact, and I'd heard this over the, over the 70s, really, that you were kind of, the, you'd be more interested in if you had been around to keep them out of so the early days. Yeah, so sometimes. I remember doing Let It Be. We sat in Apple around the table, and I come up with this idea, you know, that we should. Yeah, could be anyone about the idea, but it happened to be me that let it be. I said, be good, you know, if we kind of got in the film and so on, so on, so on. So on. So I remember John said, why? What for? I can explain a bit more. He said, oh, I get it. You want a job? Yeah, that's it. And it was like, oh, he wants a job. Uh, and it was like, it seemed strange to me that they didn't, but they were seemed quite happy just sort of sitting out in St. George's Hill, you know, just languishing. I always wanted to make the group great and even greater. And when we made Let It Be, it was a bit crummy. I insisted that we made Abbey Road because I knew what we were capable of and I didn't think we pulled it off in that Let It Be. And then with the Phil Spectre remix, uh, we, we kind of walked away from that LP. We didn't really want to know. In fact, the best version of it was before anyone got hold of it. The Glyn Johns early mixes were great, but they were very bare, very sparkling album, but it's great. Now it would be one of the hippest albums going if they, if they brought it. It's probably on bootlegs. Yeah, sure. But it, before it got its overdubs, before it had all its raw edges off it, that was like one of the best Beatle albums because it was it was a bit kind of avant-garde, really, because it was just purely as we recorded it down there in Apple or on the roof. It was that. 
with a good sound on it from Glyn Johns, just a couple of mics over the drums, and very basic because he's a basic project. I mean, I loved it. But, um, no, but it wasn't on the Let It Be thing, on those things. Often, 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 yeah. It's also about the drums. So I, got, I became known as being overpowering. So it was Abbey Road we were doing, yeah, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, because I got some grief on that. I yeah, took yeah. three days to do that. Now you know how long Trevor Horn takes yeah, sure, to do a mix sure, for Frankie. Sure, sure. You know, so that's the strange thing. I feel vindicated as time goes on. I'm beginning to understand what I was doing. And that it, that it was, it was, half of it was as innocent as I thought it was. I didn't think we got Maxwell's Silver Hammer right, so I kept pushing to get it right. And they said, man, we spent two days on this song already. Which, you know, now, two days it takes to switch on the Fairlight. Yeah, it does, man. I, I had a group the other day, spent two days trying to find the on switch. Seriously. But that's what we're into these days, you know. So, um, let's say, you know, the, on one of the sessions, it was around about Maxwell Silver Hammer time. This did used to, I, I'm sure it did piss people off. And much as I try to not piss people off, obviously, if you are, um, I don't know, driving force, overbearing, whatever you want to call it, if you are on the ball, perfectionist, whatever, it can annoy some people. Because some people can just say, oh, come on, man, hang out. Come and just have a drink. Let's go and have a drink. Let's go have a smoke or something. Let's just like, which, you know, I did plenty of anyway. I mean, it wasn't as if I was just a relentless crazy. I mean, I didn't plenty of the other. It just seemed to me when we went, when we had a session booked, it was a cool idea to turn up. You know, but that wasn't always the case. Like Sergeant Pepper, George turned up for his number and, and a couple of other sessions, but not very much else. Because George was supposed to have resented you for always getting on his back. He but... did resent it. But you see, for instance, <coughs> two examples. One, on, on Abbey Road, I was beginning to get too producery for everyone. George Martin was the actual producer, and I was beginning to sort of be too definite. And George and Ringo turned around and said, oh, look, piss off. We're fed up. Just back off. We're fine. We're grown-ups, and we can do it without you. Fine. So I kind of go, oh, one of those people like me who don't realize when they're being overbearing. It, it can be very, it becomes a great surprise to actually be told you are overbearing, you know. So I completely climbed up and sort of backed off and sort of went, right, okay, I'm burned. Back off. They're right. I'm a turd. Sit here. Fine. Okay, guys. So a day or so went by, two days, and the session started to flag a bit. Ringo eventually turned and said, come on, produce, come on. And so it was like you couldn't have it both ways. You, know, you either had to have me doing what I did, which, let's face it, you know, I hadn't done too bad, or I was going to back off and become paranoid myself, which is what happened. There's a lot of wings was to do with that, that I was just, I'd been told I was so sort of overbearing. That, for instance, if the guitarists in Wings wanted to play a solo a certain way, I, I wouldn't dare tell them not that it wasn't good. And the other example that really pissed George off, but I do think I was right, was when we were making Hey Jude, but you're old. Right? And I hear it now, you know, it's still got the same. Anyway, um, was we are making Hey Jude, and to me, it, it, it had to have a sparse opening. Hey Jude, Jude, Jude. Just have this intimate opening, and it was going to build, and it was going to build, and kitchen sink, and eventually get to Nirvana, or near Nirvana. Anyway, so um, I start up here, Jude, and George went, don't make it bad. 
Take a sad song, doodle-doodle, I'll make it better, doodle-doodle. And George was answering every line through the whole song, and I just said, no, I really don't want that, it's my song. So we always had, the rule was whoever song it was, to say how they arranged it. So of course, you know, that pissed him off. And I'm sure I pissed Ringo off when he couldn't quite get the drums to USSR, and I sort of sat in. I'm, I'm actually still very aware of that. It's a very weird thing to know you can do a thing that someone else is having trouble with. Because, one, you make it very simple by just going down and doing it and just bluffing right through it and thinking, the hell, at least I'm helping. But the, obviously the paranoia comes in is, but I'm going to show him up. And I was very sensitive to that. I was sitting around thinking, should I say it? It always came to, you should have said something. So, you know, it's always, it's just, it's very hard thing to balance that. So in the end, like I said, sometimes I was overbearing, sometimes they liked it, so it's, it could work out. Do you have much to do with them now, George? Uh, I'm just starting to, to, to get back with them, really. Uh, we, it's all business troubles. It's all business troubles. Seems to be. I mean, you know... That's what really spoils the whole thing for us. If we don't talk about Apple, we get on like a house on fire. The minute anyone mentions Apple, something comes up and they'll... They also sort of said, well, you wouldn't show us your records to the uh, accounts or something. And I also said, but I did. Your man is now at this moment in my office. And I said, oh, like hell he is. And we have major misunderstandings over things like that. Uh, but I do bend over backwards to, to try and uh, not be sort of crazy with that stuff. But, no, so I've just started to see them again. And I had a great day the other day with George. He came down to visit me. And we really had, for the first time in, in billions of years, been a nice time. Because uh, George was my original mate in the Beatles. Well, more than... I knew George, yeah. Well, well he lived near me, so I lived, I lived, uh, we lived in Upton Green. Yeah. Little, little, little close kind of thing. And I lived in Ardwick Road, and it was like half a mile away. So we were mates, took the same bus to the same school, the 500, which was the Express. So we took the same bus, so we often would sit together, and then we got a guitar about the same time. And we went through the chord books, and say, Bert Whedon guitar technique, chord books, and we learned D and A together, and E. And uh, we, were, we were quite big buddies then. So that was something I'd missed, really, through all these years. You know, we, we got all professional and Beatles and everything. You lose that, obviously. And he just came down the other day, and we didn't talk anything about that. And we didn't pick up. Somebody said, so I told somebody else this the other day, that, that I'd seen him. And they said, did you, did you play together? It was American. I said, nope, didn't touch an instrument, didn't do anything. It was just back on, back as mates, like on the bus, because he's very into trees and planting and horticulture, as I am more now. So we talked about planting trees. What's that plant? That's nice. And it was really great to actually sort of relate as two people and try and get all that crap out the window, put it up to one side for once. It's so, such a wage of that stuff. But that seems to be part of the process. He seems to be emerging more anyway. Yeah, well, so yeah it's, it's, it's coming to now. We're all kind of coming to. I mean, that, we, all, we all brushed off this whole Beatle episode and sort of said, well, it's no big deal. Obviously, it's a big deal. It was a huge well, deal. Right. <laughs> you know, if, you, if there ever was a big deal, that was it, like, you know. So I don't think half of us know what happened to us, really. I mean, I can never tell you what year I think was. Literally, they all just go into like a haze for me, the years and stuff. So I'm not, I know 
of what we did and sort of what we did. But I keep seeing pictures of myself, like with seeing shaking hands with Mitzi Gaynor. I, mean, I didn't know I met her. I mean, it's that, it's that vague. And yet, I, I look as straight as a die in there. I'm not, I'm not kind of. I mean, is that because you're on speed or dope? I don't think so. No, I think it was just life was speeding. You would just meet Mitzi Gaynor for five minutes and then you go and meet Jerry Lewis's kids. It's kind of very difficult after a while just to know if you met 50 of them. In LA, you know, we meet, we met millions of them. It was probably just one of those star celebrity bashes. But I keep seeing me photos of me with people that I didn't even know I'd met. Quite embarrassing. It's just saying, how I met you. And they're very famous. You know, anyone else in the world would remember they met them. It seems like I'm being good. I think I'm being arrogant. Exactly. It's just it's flaco. I mean, it is. Bowie's got that problem too, because he did do. He was a bit, probably a bit more flaky. But he's he's got huge periods of his life. He just does not know what happened. What a scene! It's <laughs> a laugh, though. I tell you that much. Yeah, that's a good time. But um, no, you know that that kind of thing goes on. But I mean, were you aware of kind of? Were you aware of this, or were you just like living your life and you hear suddenly you're worth so much and then you're worth so much? Yeah, we used to ask them, am I a millionaire yet? And I used to say cryptic things like, on paper you are. So what's that mean? I mean, is the imprint of those little green things yet? So, well, it's not actually in a bank, but with the paper and the paper and the thing, you know, I, we think you are. It's actually very difficult to be. The accountants never made you feel successful. I remember we had the top five in America. And I decided I wanted to buy a country house. And I wasn't asking for the world, you know, because those days it would have cost whack. And I went to the accountant and he said, you have to get a mortgage. What do you mean, mortgage? You know, aren't we doing well yet? We've got the top five, you know. There's got to be something, some money coming up. They always try to keep you down. So you didn't actually get much of a feeling of being very rich. And I mean, the first time I actually saw checks was when I left Apple. And it wasn't me that saw them, it was Linda. Because we'd co-written a few of our early things. I live in Lentai, she helped me with some words on. So I <clears throat> put her down as co-writer, which the, the writers didn't like. Yeah, so she's eighty million like. In fact, they sued me. Very charming, I thought. It was all this settled somewhere. Please stepped in and settled. Very good term, probably. This is top man. But uh, no, the first checks were Linda's. I actually saw royalty checks coming to Linda. Oh, wow, yeah, I bet I got a few of them somewhere. But mine never came to me. I always went to a party aforementioned, and it always just went down a big well. We never saw any. So um, didn't have much of a feeling of being that well off, although we, we spent it with great glee. The miles, to which miles, sir? Um, International Times, yeah. Yeah. He was taking time of this story of like going down to the Ashes place. I think you were aware on the tour of Peter Asher's show, and he sort of looked at it. He said, he sort of said Look, and they opened a uh, cupboard and like. Yeah, I've like, heard that story. If I had read it, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, maybe that's true. I don't remember that. And things do get exaggerated. Maybe I've unexaggerated my memory of it. I never remember actually having uh, a wad of money like that. I certainly. Because I, I always heard that like when Brian did make the deals. It was know, nice of him. It was the sixth. That's why I never saw them. I probably probably had it away. No, I mean I don't I don't really remember that. In fact, I did. That was another thing. I, I must 
because I, I saw the word Miles, and I, I didn't know Miles. He's a good mate. Yeah, I haven't seen him for a long time. But he was like, he was like my mate. Is he done against me? Great. Yeah. That'd be all right. Cause he's a, he's a good, good guy. Man. Barry is because he was being very friendly. That's that's cool. What's your name, Miles? Miles what? Uh, we had many a wondrous stoned evening at his place with uh, listening to all sorts. See, that was another of the interesting things that... See, I, I think I've, I've got like a certain personality. To me, if I give charity, I don't, I don't like to shout about it. So some people think I don't give charity. If I know I get into avant-garde stuff, I don't particularly shout, hey, you know what I'm into now, avant-garde stuff. I just kind of do it and get on with it. So way before John met Yoko and got avant-garde, I was like the avant-garde London bachelor with, with Miles, my pad in St. John's Wood. I was making like eight millimeter movies showing them to Antonioni. That was pretty far out stuff, you know. And, and putting, uh, I had all sorts of theories, you know, of um, music synchronization, where we, we put on a Ravi Shankar to our home movies and it had synchronized. I just did it with my kids the other day. She brought home movies. It does, it does, it fits, it fits. Yeah, it fits. I was doing this But, you know, I have a kind of looking slightly, this is great, we should do more. This sort of attitude of, well, you know, I am sort of what I am, this is me just learning. Miles, anyway, turned me on to a lot of that International Times, what's it called, Green Review or something? Evergreen. Yeah. Evergreen. And we used to do a lot of that. But, I mean, it never really came out about me. When John went out of guard, you knew about it. Was that because he was a self-publicist, or was it just the happening? No, he's just enthusiasm for whatever he was doing. John was very upfront. I'm not as upfront. I'm, uh, I'm just a different personality. You know, it just doesn't occur to me to tell people everything I'm doing. Uh, but, you know, I was into quite a sort of heavy avant-garde trip. I had to sit with Burroughs in a basement. And there were, there were a couple of gay guys that were involved that knew William, who was like friends of mine. I, I, I don't know, I got in the Jumpton bar and I had faith in the crowd. And there was just there was a scene around London, you know. It didn't matter, gay, shmay, who cared, you know. Um, and we used to sit down in Montague Square, where John eventually got a flat. That was yeah, yeah, the connection, where he got busted. That was where we used to and I remember sitting around with Burroughs, you know, to do little tapes and back with guitar and cello and crazy stuff. But um, it didn't occur to me the next enemy interview I did to say, hey, have you heard of William Burroughs, man? He's in town and he's writing the greatest album. Maybe it would have been good for me to do that. I don't know. You know, I just, I just kind of do what occurs to me, you know, and sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. But um, I say, you know, Yoko turned up to see me first in London. She met me before she met oh, John. Yes, no, I didn't know that. See, this is what I mean. You know, they, and you won't hear it off them either, because they're, they're Scott and Zelda. You know, they want the image, they want the story just how they put it out. She turned up um, for a charity thing. It was something to do with, she wanted manuscripts. Something to do with avant-garde music, Cage, uh, John, John Cage in New York. There was some benefit for somebody. And she was looking for manuscripts, uh, any any spare lyric sheets you had around, and I was pretending to be on the backs of envelopes and quite funky little things. And to tell you the truth, I didn't want to give her any. 
big deal. So I'm allowed. I don't have to do it. It just I didn't want it. I kept these manuscripts are very precious to me, and the cause didn't seem so great. I forget what it was. So I said, but does it, my mate might be interested. John, you know, and I gave him John's address, and I think that was first how they hooked up. Um, and then she had her exhibition and stuff, and then their, their side of the story starts to happen. And also, I, I kind of um, say, you know, I feel like I'm kind of justifying living, you know, which is a bit of a piss off because I don't really want to have to sit around and justify myself. It's a bit humiliating. But there are lots of things that haven't come out. I mean, for instance, when they bust up their marriage, she came through London. He'd gone, he was in LA doing Pussycats with Nielsen and having a generally quite crazy time of it all. And he was the guy, you know, the famous story, don't you know who I am? He says, the waitress, she says, yeah, in the gym with the cotex on his head. And he was doing that, fighting the photographers and, and the haranguing the Smothers brothers. And generally being really they loved Yoko, and they had a very, very deep, strong relationship. But they were into all sorts of crazy stuff, and uh, I don't know the half of that. I don't, a lot of people don't know the half of that. There's hints that it keep coming out in books, but you never know if you can believe that. There's been occultism or... All sorts. Well, I certainly did get a postcard. We all got postcards from Yoko saying, go around the world in a southeasterly direction. It'll be good for you. Do it. Do you you're allowed to stop at four places? George Martin got one of those, and he says, it'd be all right if I go to Montserrat. I said, no. I think John did the voyage. John, John yes. went yes. on the southeasterly direction around the road. Well, we all kind of went, sure, sure, we'll go around the southeast. Well, we got sat with John and Yoko. And well, I was going to tell you about the marriage thing. I'll tell you, I'll, well, I remember, I'll tell you, see, there's so many memories come flooding in. And it's like a psycho session the minute I get on this stuff. I'm on the couch, you know, and I'm just trying to purge it all, you know. Um, I sat at dinner with them once. Linda and me came over, and we sat at dinner. And John said, you fancy getting a tree panning thing done? I said, well, what is it? He said, well, you can have a hole board in your skull, and, uh, you know, it relieves the pressure. And I said, well, look, we're sitting at dinner, and this is seriously being... Offered as a series, it wasn't a joke. It was in the 60s, by the way. Yeah. Because I wrote people into that. Yeah. Now, this wasn't a joke. This is like, let's go next week. We know a guy who can do it. And, you know, maybe we all go together. I just said, oh. Yeah. I said, well, look, you go and have it done. If it works great, tell us all about it. We'll have it. But, you know, I'm afraid I'm just, I've always been a little bit uh, cynical about stuff like that. Thank God, I think. Because I think, you know, there's so much crap you've really got to be careful of. But John was more open to things like that. I think he always, I mean, his quote about Klein kind of sums it up. Anyone who's been so bad-mouthed can't be that bad. And there was this kind of crazy reverse logic that, that anyone who was that bad must be good. All right, yeah. And it's very difficult way when you, you, you start all crazy. Hitler must be okay. Hitler <laughs> presumably must have had some good points. You know, but this is what I mean. It, it's very difficult to, to cope with that kind of thinking. Is you, you're having to, I mean, it's bad enough just trying to be logical, but trying to be reverse logical is like very difficult. I remember getting letters from priests. This is a priest at a monastery used to send letters where he turned all the words backwards. And that's a hard habit to get out of. Don't know if you've ever gone through that. Where you, God becomes yeah. dog, yeah. life yeah. becomes yeah. evil, and all that stuff. And he was doing this trip. And you start looking at every word then. Memo is, I'm him. 
Yeah, it's that numerology. You can't look at numbers without doing the calculation. And I, I had to train myself to stop, man. This, I don't want to know about this. You know, I'm sure anyone who's interested, great, good luck to you. I wouldn't put you down. You know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot in it. But I don't, I, I'm crazy enough anyway. Well, were you, I mean, you know, you were smoking a lot of dope as well. Were you getting paranoid as well? It doesn't make yeah. you know, it doesn't help. No, no, it doesn't. No. Um, yeah, it's been quite paranoid, yeah. I was telling you about the marriage thing. When they, when they broke up, um, she came, we all came through London and visited us, which was very nice. And Linda and I just got married just a bit before. We lived in this big sort of old house in St. John's Wood. And uh, Yoko came by and we started talking. Obviously, the important subject for us is what's happened. You've broken up then, you know, you're here, he's there. What's, what's happened? And she was very nice and confided in us that, yeah, you know, he's kind of broken up. But she was being very strong about it, but very, not feminist, but being a strong woman rather than just committed to it all. And she said, no, he's got to work his way back. If he's to get back with me, I can't just go. And she couldn't. She's, which is good, you know, I mean, I, I think she would be mad to just go and prostrate herself at his feet, kind of thing. But uh, she said, no, he's going to have to work it. And I said, well, look, I mean, if I see him, what, are you still in love? Do you still still love him? She said, yeah. I said, well, would you be, would you think it was an intrusion if I kind of said to him, look, man, she loves you and there's a way to get back and you can, it sounds like Beatles songs. It sounds like that. I send all my love from me to you. Um, and I said this uh, to Yoko, I said, would that be okay? Would you hate that? Uh, but, you know, we might see him around, so I, I would like to be a mediator in this, because I think you, the two of you obviously got something pretty strong going. <clears throat> and she said she didn't mind. So that was that visitor. We went out to visit them and doing pussy, they were doing pussycats. And uh, it was weird to kind of just meet him. But then I, I, I just said to John, who's in the house with uh, Nielsen, Jesse, his moon, a few of the guys, and they were all, it's a pretty crazed house there, you know, you hear some of the stories coming out of that house, and um, it was pretty wild days, and I said to him, hey, come on, come in, come in the back room, I want to talk to you privately, so we went in the back room, and I sat him down privately, and I said, look, I feel a bit like a matchmaker here, but this girl, you she really still loves you, do you love her? Uh, in a divorce call, you know, divorce settlement, but I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'm talking to her. So like, she does still love you, but you're going to have to work your little ass off, man. You have to get back to New York. You have to take a separate flat. You have to send her roses every fucking day. You have to work at it like a bitch, and you just might get her back. And, which is sort of what he did. But you'll never hear that story. You won't hear that off them because... Yeah. I mean, it gives me too much. I'm too in the story then. They don't want me in the story. I prefer to think John, if you hear it from John's point of view, it'll just be that he spoke to her on the phone and she said to him, come back and sort of work. Well, I always sort of found it interesting the fact that he got, I mean, it seemed too much like coincidence to me, the fact he got married you know, a week, month after you. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, we, I think it was we spurred each other into marriage. I mean, you know, I, I, they were very strong together, which left me out of the picture. So I got together with Linda, and then we got strong, got our own kind of strong. And I used to listen to a lot of what they said. I remember him saying to me, you've got to work at marriage, which is something I still remember as a bit of advice. Um, you know, I still remember that. Uh, 
And then, yeah, I think, I think again, you know, they were probably a little bit sort of peeved that we got married first. Probably a little way, you know, just minor jealousies. And then, so they got married. Uh, but I wondered if I don't know that's, I don't know, I mean, who knows? I don't mean it. I wonder if there's that thing, you know, like you have two two blokes like good mates, you know, yeah, and then you know one of them finds a girl, the other, you know, maybe that one doesn't want to, you know, it's like a lot of kind of, you know, friendships often often breaks up, you know, there's quite a lot of bitterness and acrimony. Wedding bells seemed like one of wedding bells is what it was. The song, the wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mushrooms, and we used to know that song. Jim Vincent did it. We used to sing it. Another gang of They forgot sweet Anna. I used to know that song, so the, the, the association we had when we were young was army. It was sort of army song, where, you know, army buddies and wedding bells breaking up this army. But for us, the army became the Beatles. So we always kind of knew that one day wedding bells would come true. But, and that was when it did. Um, so, you know, I mean, the thing is, the trouble is, in trying to sort of set the record straight and trying to do all this, I don't want to sort of blame John or make anyone think. I mean, I, I did this thing recently with Hunter Davis, and they pulled out the one line, John could be a maneuvering swine. Well, I still stick to that, but I'd better not say it to the sun, you know, because I'm going to get, I'll just get hauled over the coals again. The point was, John was a very human guy, and if you got in a business meeting with him, I mean, I'll tell you exactly why I said that. Was that we had a business meeting to break up the Beatles, one of the famous ones that we've been having, still having, still haven't done it, 17 years later. Um, we had this meeting, we were in New York, and we all flew in, especially George came off his tour, his disastrous tour he had, it wasn't too good. You know, um, Ringo flew in, I flew in, we were all in New York at the plaza for the big final settlement meeting. John was a coach. I mean, as you know, in New York geography, that's like half a mile away. And John sent a balloon over. Listen to this balloon. Well, you've got to be pretty cool to kind of handle that stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. George rung him up. You fucking maniac. You take your fucking dark glasses off and come and look at us, man. And gave him a whole load of that shit. And later, I was around at the same time with another meeting. Similar thing. Well, John, everything was going swinging. We had it all settled. Well, last minute, John asked for an extra million pounds. It's all he wanted. It's an extra million pounds. So, of course, that meeting blew up. Disarray. And that finished that particular meeting. Later, we got a bit friendlier, you know, because occasionally there were little um, stepping stones of friendship in this kind of apple sea, you know. Um, and one of those times, I said to him, what was all that about? Why, why did you actually offer a million? He said, I just wanted cards for my hand. I wanted cards to play with. Now, that's a maneuver. That's the kind of, I wouldn't do that. As somebody who's, it's good. It's a good, absolutely standard business practice. You know, he just wanted cards to play with. He wanted a couple of jacks to, to, to up your pair of nines. Uh, and that's, you know, he was quite open about that. But of course, if I come out now that he's sort of um, died and all the tragedy that's sort of surrounded him, particularly, you know, the assassination, the craziness, it wouldn't just be a maniac and stuff. It wouldn't just be a car accident. You know, so it was particularly... Um, 
In a way, I'm kind of expected to just sort of say, he was a saint, he was always a saint, I remember him as a saint, I love him as a saint. But that would be a lie. I mean, the one great guy, and part of his greatness was that he wasn't a saint. He was a great guy, he was pretty uh, sacrilegious and uh, pretty upfront about it, you know. That was, that was half the fun. You, you got an awful lot of shit for that remark you made, like when you were asked about people been killed, you know, it's, it's a drag. It's a drag yeah. But that seemed to me like, I didn't understand why, because that seemed to me like classic understatement, you know, I could envisage, you know, saying that. I mean, you're yeah. saying it's a drag, you're always actually saying it's appalling, you know. Yes, exactly, yeah. You know, like, but, uh, you know, I think why some politicians are so successful is that they, they have a little um, bleeper box in their head before they say things. They run things through their mind and they can see it as a headline. If it doesn't look good, they edit it. Sure. Um, I have that sometimes, but I don't always have that, particularly in moments like that, where all my bleepers go out the window. I mean, we were very surprised to go to work that day. That was like a, a kind of shock, because you know, I wasn't going to sit at home. Tell you that, you know, just sitting down with watching television and watching the news. So, where to where? so we went into uh, London. George Martin rang me up and said, Do you want to cancel? You know, I understand if you do. And I said, No way. I said, I just got to, I got to walk through this day. So he came up and uh, it wasn't too bad getting in there. And we did our work of sorts. There's a track called Rain Clouds we were working on, so it was pretty strange. There was a little Aeolian, Paddy of the Chieftains, you know, Paddy the Aeolian Pipesman. He worked on it. He was good, actually, because he was just the right kind of character to see that day, because he's, he's like a sort of magic leprechaun, Paddy. So it was nice to sort of have a, a magic person around. It was as if he was a guru somehow sent to help that day out. So we just beaving on, beaving on, and just kind of, you know, occasionally sort of... And, and what had happened is people would, people would do jokes, not meaning it, and say, well, well, we'll do the film next week, yeah, we'll shoot it. And you heard the word shoot, you go, oh. oh, and everyone, you know, everything you said seemed to be shoot, or, well, we'll, you know, don't cut me. And every time you spoke, you seemed to say all these terrible things. And then eventually, you know, I just thought, well, I've just got to go home now, you know, just, there's not, no more work to be done. Like, I can't just, I can't stay here all night. I couldn't hide it any longer. But I came out of the place. And uh, somebody just stuck the microphone, the proverbial microphone, in the window of the car, which I'm mad enough to have open. Because, see, I'm quite outgoing. I was telling the fans, thank you, it's all right. You know, five macker, thumbs aloft, wacky. To me, that's just being nice. That's just, you see, every Liverpool, all right, mate, sorry, sorry. It's ordinary to me. I'm not going to take carry any can for that kind of shit. To me, that's also okay. out as well, doesn't it? Well, somebody, they, they've so. now started saying that it's my... It's my armor against the fans. It means loads of stuff. Yeah, it isn't. It isn't my armor. It's, it's perfectly a straightforward way of saying being friendly with people. You know. Anyway, so this this stuff saying anything, and he said, "What do you think of the murder of John Lennon?" And I actually, if you heard how I said it, it it was what you thought. I said it's a drag, and I meant if I could have, I might have just lengthened that word drag for about a thousand years get the meaning in it. But it was all over and over. Of course, the minute that appears in print, in black and white, Paul McCartney, I'm being asked, and many of the editors have been to it, and so on and so on, and I'm just one of a million punters saying what it is. Paul McCartney, you know, they did in downtown London last night, and I was asked by our reporter, our correspondent, what is the feeling to wear on him, the death of his dear, long, his was. The score was, it's a drag. 
Hey ho, on to other matters. In the Philippines today, you know, I'm being much He's a drag, that's what he said. No, I you do, do. I understood it. I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, none kind of Fleet Street reporting editors did understand it, you know? Just well, Hunter Davis was on the television that night giving a very reasoned account of John. Yes, was, you know, he sprang, he sprang right up there. You know, the puppet sprang right up, and all. Oh, the, I thought it was a bit. Odd. I thought it was well tasteless. We all did actually. Jesus Christ, we're ready with the answer, aren't we? Aren't we just ready with the summary? Mind you, Hunter had admitted to us years ago that he already had our obituaries written. They're all written and on file at the Times. So they just update them. Every yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of chilling to learn, you know, that he'd already done us. Well, so obviously he just pulled his obituary out for John and went to it, you know. But, um, you know, the question is, which is the more sensitive thing? My thing or his thing? You, you pay your money, you take your choice. You know, he was the guy I rang up about manoeuvring swine, too. So it shows what a buddy he is. Immediately put it in print, you know. He didn't sort of edit it out and say, well, he, to give him his due, he did actually. In the, in the larger context of it, it was quite nice, it was quite reasonable, and he reported my point of view. But again, that incident reminded me of John saying, We're bigger than Jesus, which is a Maureen Cleave article for the Evening Standard, and John and Maureen were good friends. And um, in context, it was actually John saying to the church, Hey, wake up. We're bigger than you. You actually read that article. Yeah, you, saying, should, you should get your shit together. Exactly. He was saying, you know, the church is in decline, which right. it certainly is. Certainly nothing wrong with that statement. Well, people here anyway. It's, it's a lot of born again in America, Reagan and that. But over here, you know, it's having a hard time. Um, and he was commenting on that, and she said, so and so. And he said, well, for Christ's sake, he said, I mean, we're bigger than Jesus these days. And he meant church audiences, the church congregations are or audiences are on the decline, you know. And he was he was trying to he was as always trying to be helpful and trying to, you know, just give his point of view. So. But you take that out, you send it to Selma, Alabama, you put it on the front page, and you've got little eleven year olds thumping on your coach window saying, Blasphemer, devil worshipper, blasphemer, devil worshipper, never, never forget that size of a little blonde kid trying to get to us. He would have you would have done it if it had got to us too. But I mean, at 11, what does, kid, what does this kid know of life and religion? Right? He's just been whipped up. Are they? Fine. So um, how, we've got a little longer, presumably. Yeah. Where uh, are they? Where are they? Okay, so. Want to come to you something? Yeah, I'd love it. Can we have a little warm on the other side of the table? MSW Media.